Welcome to episode 32 of the Idea Blog podcast on the Criminal Code of Canada. My name is Lisa Silver, and in this episode, we will discuss law enforcement justification provisions proclaimed in force on February 1st, 2002, as found under a compendium of sections from 25.1 to 25.4 in the Criminal Code. These sections acknowledge certain police investigatory practices will involve the commission of offenses, particularly where officers operate in a covert or undercover capacity. The most well-known investigatory technique subject to these sections would be the Mr. Big or reverse sting investigations, which have attracted Supreme Court of Canada notice through the recent cases of Hart and Mack. For a further discussion of the many issues arising in such investigations, I highly recommend the book Mr. Big, Exposing Undercover Investigations in Canada, authored by Currie Keenan and Joan Brockman, who are both from that excellent criminology faculty at the Simon Fraser University. In fact, Joan Brockman was a Crown prosecutor and is now a full-time professor there. The sections themselves were created in response to the 1999 Supreme Court of Canada decision in Campbell, wherein the court found that the police were not immune from criminal liability as a result of unlawful conduct, even if it was executed in good faith and to further a criminal investigation. The court thus called upon Parliament to legislate such protection, which it did under these sections. Although these sections make provision for investigators to commit offenses in the course of their investigatory duties, the sections also create a mechanism for parliamentary and civilian oversight of such exceptional investigatory techniques. Thus, Section 25.1 contemplates a, quote, competent authority, end quote, such as the Federal Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, or as in the case of Alberta, the Solicitor General and Minister of Justice, who has the authority to designate, quote, public officers, end quote, to act in these investigatory capacities. In addition to this designation, there must be civilian oversight or a, quote, public authority, end quote, in accordance with 25.1 subsection 3.1, quote, composed of persons who are not peace officers that may review the public officer's conduct, end quote. Furthermore, the designating minister under section 25.1 subsection 4 must designate such public officers upon the advice of a senior official who is a member of a law enforcement agency and has been so designated to act as a senior official by the minister. In some ways, this designation process is rather self-fulfilling or circular, considering the actual ministerial official who is receiving the advice chooses or designates the advising official. Upon receiving this senior official's advice, the minister must make the public officer designation on the basis of, quote, law enforcement generally, end quote, rather on the basis of a specific law enforcement activity or specific investigation. Therefore, such designation must be viewed in the broader context of law enforcement, according to Section 25.1, subsection 4, and not done on a case-by-case basis. As with many ministerial decisions, this is the only articulated criterion for the designation, which leaves such designations open to broad discretion. 
the senior official or advisor to the minister has broader powers permitting the temporary designation of a public officer without the competent authority under section 25.1 subsection 6, which is under exigent circumstances wherein it's not feasible to have the competent authority or minister perform the designation and where the public officer would be justified in the circumstances and acting contrary to the criminal code. The circumstances of such a designation are set out under 25.1 subsection 7 and the justification for such conduct is found under section 25.1 subsection 8 being that the senior official believes on reasonable grounds that quote the commission of the act or omission as compared to the nature of the offense or criminal activity being investigated is reasonable and proportional in the circumstances having regard to such matters as the nature of the act or omission, the nature of the investigation, and the reasonable availability of other means for carrying out the public officer's law enforcement duties." End quote. In such exigent circumstances, the senior official must notify the minister of this action without delay. This requirement, I would suggest, seems rather contradictory. The purpose of the notification would be to ensure that such actions are not taken without the knowledge of the minister, but in order to affect such awareness, notification must not only be fulfilled if, in fact, the minister receives the missive and reads it. If the minister is available to review such a document, one wonders why the minister is not in the position of making the actual decision considering the availability of instantaneous electronic communication. In any event, there are further restrictions on the public officer's ability and authority to act outside of the criminal code. Under subsection 9, further restrictions pertain to instances where the public officer is involved in activity that would be likely to result in loss of or serious damage to property or where a person is acting under the direction of the public officer in accordance with subsection 10. In these specific circumstances, the public officer must not only comply with the circumstances of justification under subsection 8, but must also comply with the further justifications listed under subsection 9. Thus, the public officer must also be personally authorized in writing to act, or if such written authorization is not feasible, the officer must believe on reasonable grounds that the acts are necessary to, quote, preserve the life or safety of any person, prevent the compromise of the identity of a public officer acting in an undercover capacity, of a confidential informant or of a person acting covertly under the direction and control of a public officer, or prevent the imminent loss or destruction of evidence of an indictable offense, end quote. This broad authority and justification to commit criminal offenses is tempered by the limitation to this section under subsection 11, that there is no justification for, quote, the intentional or criminally negligent causing of death or bodily harm to another person, the willful attempt in any manner to obstruct, pervert, or defeat the course of justice, or conduct conduct that would violate the sexual integrity of an individual, end quote. Section 25.1 also reiterates that all other protections to a police officer in the code are available and that despite the extraordinary powers under this section, officers must still comply with the rules of evidence. When a public officer does in fact commit an offense or direct others to do so in accordance with Section 25.1, there are further oversight requirements 
such as under 25.2, the public officer must file a written report with the senior official as soon as feasible after the commission of the said acts. An annual report is compiled by the competent authority or minister and made public regarding the previous yearly activities outlining the number of emergency designations made and the number of written authorizations made by senior officials under 25.1 subsection 9a, the number of offenses committed by officers as a result, the nature of the conduct being investigated, and the nature of the acts committed by the designated officers. However, such report must still preserve the confidentiality, must not compromise ongoing investigations, must not prejudice an ongoing legal proceeding, and must generally be not contrary to the public interest. Such annual reports need to be published and are available online. For instance, the RCMP publishes such reports through the Public Safety website. Although the 2012 report is available online, the 2013 report has not as yet been published. However, provincial reports are available, such as the 2013 report from British Columbia. Please note that, for instance, with the RCMP and no doubt with the provincial reports as well, such reports have to be tabled in the Parliament, House of Commons, or in the legislature, and has to go through the parliamentary scrutiny before they are thus, I would suggest, released to the public. Alberta does not publish a standalone report, but publishes the information as part of a larger report on the state of the ministry as a whole. This means the information is not clearly accessible, but can be found under the heading in the report entitled, quote, Annual Report Extracts and Other Statutory Reports, end quote. The actual 2013 report consists of three lines indicating three instances of illegal conduct committed while investigating homicide and missing persons and resulted in minor damage to a vehicle. It should be noted that this three-line, basically three-line report is found in a much larger report that is, I would say, about 150 pages. In the previous 2012 report, there were five instances of illegal conduct wherein the officers created the, quote, illusion, end quote, of a break-in, committed property damage and participated in activities of a criminal organization. This description creates more questions than answers considering it is not a crime to create a quote illusion end quote of a crime if a crime was not actually committed unless amounted to an obstruct justice which as you already heard cannot be justified under those sections or a public mischief. If so then the report should actually specify the exact crime as again an illusion of a crime is not a crime. So the report should be more specific and to suggest and indicate in what circumstances this illusion was created. Similarly, the fact that the officers participated in activities of a criminal organization is unclear, considering some of those activities could no doubt be specifically identified as commission of crimes, or perhaps are not crimes. Compare this to the BC report, which although brief, contains much more information, such as the number of times the emergency designations were used. Certainly none of these reports have the kind of specific information which would protect the integrity of the law enforcement process, yet fulfill the oversight requirements as contemplated by the criminal code sections and as mandated by the courts.
Considering the Hart and Mack decisions and the court's concern with the use of these kinds of investigatory techniques, which essentially mimic criminal organizations, such reporting should be reconsidered by government authorities. Considering the importance of this oversight function and the fact there's no prior judicial authorization required, although sometimes there is in terms of wiretap authorizations or searches, the published information should be standardized by the federal government and subject to civilian oversight scrutiny. With electronic interceptions of private communications under Section 25.4, within a year after committing the justified offense, the senior officer who receives the public officer's written report must notify in writing any person whose property was lost or seriously damaged as a result of the act or omission, unless such notification would compromise or hinder an investigation compromise the identity of an officer or informant, endanger the life or safety of another, prejudice a legal proceeding, or be contrary to the public interest. A possible concern is the exception to notify for reasons of prejudicing a legal proceeding, as such prejudice may be in the eye of the beholder. In other words, such non-disclosure may prejudice the accused trial, even though disclosure would prejudice the prosecutor's case. It seems more appropriate in matters that are before the court for a judicial authority to balance these rights and to determine whether or not notice should be given. This would be more consistent with charter rights of disclosure of the Crown's case to the defense. Finally, it should be noted that there are provisions which require a legislative review of these sections within three years of the sections coming into force. The first report of such review was presented in 2006. One of the concerns raised in the report was the lack of prior judicial authorization for some of this activity. There are other concerns raised, but the committee, quote, lacked sufficient evidence to come to any firm conclusions, end quote, and the sections remained unchanged. Indeed, the report was entitled, quote, interim, end quote, report, although I was unable to locate a final one. It is important to note the paucity of information on the civilian oversight aspect of these sections. There is no reporting of or information pertaining to the composition of the quote public authority and quote contemplated by these sections and there are no findings of this particular oversight committee. Interesting paper presented at a KCOL conference which is the Canadian Association for Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement in 2002 as these sections were proclaimed in force. The paper presents an excellent overview of the proposed regime and the rationale as well as discussion of similar regimes in other countries such as England and Australia. The impact on civilian oversight was minimal, meaning that there were few or no complaints arising out of the sections. However, the paper does propose some recommendations to oversight bodies to help reinforce the import of the sections by establishing a code of conduct or policies relating to good faith of police officers and the conduct required by police officers who are authorized to use such extraordinary powers. Another recommendation is for the federal government to integrate the oversight of these activities into the relevant civilian oversight 
of the participating law enforcement agencies. Certainly this would strengthen public confidence in the system and provide transparency in a rather obscure area of law enforcement. Of note is the Australian regime which uses legislation similar to our criminal code provisions but has added protections involving stringent code of conduct for officers and the use of prior authorization. Certainly the Australian experience involves a far more robust public auditing and monitoring system than here in Canada. Of particular note is the Australian annual report on such activities known as controlled investigations, which is far more detailed than the reporting seen in Canada. It may very well be that these changes will not happen until and unless the courts become involved. To date, there have been some charter applications to declare the sections unconstitutional. These applications have been dismissed at the trial level, and such arguments have not been made at the appellate court level. Justice Curtis of the British Columbia Supreme Court considered charter arguments relating to these sections in the Lissing case. In that decision, Justice Curtis found the sections were not contrary to Section 7 of the Charter, as the sections were not constitutionally overbroad or vague. On the further Section 7 issue of whether or not the lack of prior judicial authorization renders the sections unconstitutional, Justice Curtis ruled that in the extraordinary circumstances of Section 25.1, prior judicial authorization is not warranted and, in fact, may impede the intention of the sections. As Justice Curtis stated, quote, the ultimate goal of Parliament in enacting 25.1 is the protection of everyone's right to life, liberty, and security of the person. This line of reasoning may presage similar arguments, which may be made on the anticipated federal government anti-terrorism efforts that will give CSIS enhanced powers of investigation. It will be useful to monitor the status of these provisions, considering the enhanced national security concerns and the impact of the Hart and Matt cases on the reverse sting or Mr. Big operations. Yet again, it will be the courts who will need to balance the rights of the individual to be free of state interference with the collective right to live in a secure and safe society. To go to my website at www.ideablog.ca to view the text of this podcast and also to make use of the hyperlinks that I have to the cases, to the reports that I've referred to in this episode. Thank you, and hopefully, we'll be back for episode 33.